city like I already own it Standing on top cause I earned this moment I took what was mine, now I won't let go of it Cause I'm a hustler, yeah I'm a hustler Cause I'm a hustler, yeah I'm a hustler I Again, everybody, this is Gary Roth with the Blue Collar Consulting Group, dedicated to making everything done a little bit better today or this evening. I am on with a very, very special guest. Ron Carucci is a managing partner at Navalent. He is a leadership guru. Ron, I'm going to stick with guru. Uh, he's a published author. He is absolutely an incredible uh, leadership consultant wise beyond knowledge. I'm really super excited to have him on the show. Ron, welcome to the podcast. And I hope, I truly hope I said your last name properly. You did, Gary. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Ron, if you want to just get us started, can you tell us a little bit about maybe what you do and, and where you're coming from? Uh, well, today I'm in, my, I'm in Seattle, Washington, uh, okay. where I spend my days when I'm not traveling. <laughs> Uh, and um, my managing partner of a, my firm, Navalent, you mentioned. Uh, we've been around 15 years, and we spend our days accompanying leaders of all kinds and types and sizes on their journeys of transformation, where they're trying to lead their organizations to something better, something different, something bigger. Mm -hmm. And we bring to bear all kinds of uh, approaches and tools and uh, kicks in the butt um, uh, you know, as they need it to, uh, right. to reach the, the aspirations they have. Ron, that, that's, that's awesome. And uh, boy, you know, it, I would imagine that it's hard, especially as a consultant, especially as a consulting organization to have a cookie cutter approach to any problem. So when you're, when you're working with these folks, these organizations, how do you typically start your process? Is it, is it questioning everybody? Do you just try to get involved? What do you? Where do you start? Well, like with any good, um, you know, treatment like with any good system, treatment without diagnosis is malpractice. So we go in and we do an MRI of the organization. Right. We get a real good look under the hood um, uh, to better understand what's going on. Uh, many leaders, <clears throat> when they contact us, they're in some kind of pain. They're stuck. They got themselves in a ditch, or there's some opportunity that they're trying to pursue that they can't get to. Um, but whichever it is, they typically have some slightly um, uh, partial view of the problem and okay. are have, they, have they been pulling the same lever you know, intensely for a long time or they're <laughs> at a lever still. Um, but whichever it is, typically there's some systemic look that they've missed. There's some part of what they're, uh, what they're understanding the problem is that, that just escaped them. Uh, and including it could be them. Right, that, that's often the case. Oh wow, they're a big part of the problem. But regardless, we go in and we have a pretty comprehensive, thorough way of understanding and diagnosing the organization, getting under the hood, and coming back with a fairly comprehensive look at here's what's going on here, and specific to the pain you are in, here's what is probably causing that, and then we help them sort of chart a path out. I see. So, Ron, let me ask you this. One of the most interesting questions and a, and a term that I love very much is humility. And humility causes, should cause, if you have it, 
people did make a lot of difficult decisions, including, as you mentioned, recognizing that they are part of the problem. Now, in your experience, have you had some folks recognize that and, and willingly stepped aside? Or have you had a lot of pushback on that when you suggest that a member or members of the leadership team is the problem? How do you approach that? And what has been your some of your responses to that? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't always mean they have to go. Okay. <clears throat> so it, doesn't mean that, it certainly probably means that at minimum they have to change something. Um, and I think most leaders, nobody, most leaders don't wake up in the morning thinking, how can I really piss people off today? What can I do to really be a <laughs> right. jerk? Right. So they, they're, you know, with, they're, they're just, we're, we're human. So we're, we're, we're just notoriously bad observers of our own, of our own reality. Uh-huh. Um, we all have blind spots. And so most leaders want to know what they are. Most leaders genuinely do care about how they're experienced. And when they find out that there's a gap between what they intend and what their actual impact is, they tend to want to close it. And often just don't know how. So, I, you know, I don't usually get a whole lot of people who want to dig their heels in and say, no, I don't care if they think I'm an, an idiot. I'm going to be an idiot. <laughs> right? right. And so um, there are, occasionally there are some who you think, wow, they're pretty committed to being a jerk. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And so you simply, you know, if they're not willing to go, then we just we usually walk, we walk away because I'm not really – life's too short. I don't really want to spend time with those, those folks. I understand. Okay, so sometimes you're willing to to take a step back and say this isn't the project for us. Yeah, so we're not the you know not we're not for everybody, <clears throat> and so you know um, thank goodness there's not that many of those types, but but they're there. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, to share a similar story, I did some uh, consulting for a small uh, bar and grill outside of St. Louis, and long story short, they had an employee there that was personal friends with the boss who was actually actually the, the problem she failed to try the new methods for you know customer approach i'm going to walk away also because i can't implement the new strategies the new look the new approaches with her here she's outright refusing to do it and unfortunately obviously um she wouldn't do that and i had to walk away so it's a very very interesting perspective now uh ron i remember uh, this past weekend, I think I saw some pieces of your TEDx talk. And one of the things, or I don't know, you've, maybe you've done a few of them. I, I noticed talking about uh, power, uh, recognizing like, I think, personal power, power and leadership and stuff like that. If you had a new leader or if you had a, a young company that brought you in to kind of steer things in the direction, what are some, what are some approaches you take with like a young upstart company? How do you teach them about power and and moving forward in their leadership endeavors well i think for the i mean for startup organizations um um, um you know that they, they they um they tend to be really needing much more basic stuff right so most of them are Good. just okay. forming who they are they don't really have a sense of identity or strategy they're just trying to figure out what, what it is they want to sell or they're trying to figure out what their idea is and right. so I think you know okay. there are some more the fundamentals of 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 strategy of identity of who are you serving what are your customers what is your business model I sure, think sure. leadership when 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 the organization starts to grow and you know like just like in a, a human in a body you have mitosis right work starts to divide and and grow that's when leadership becomes really important although many startups make the mistake of thinking we're too young for that stuff. You know, and suddenly there's a hundred of them, and they really have right. no. Um, uh, then they're in trouble, right? So, I think you know when you start hitting thirty, forty, fifty, sixty people, um, you really start needing to think 
very thoughtfully about how you're going to organize your work, how you, how you think about what work is important and what's not. Um, most uh, most startup organizations don't understand that, that not all work is equal. They try and create this false sense of egalitarianism where we're all <laughs> right. the same, we're all on the cause, but the reality oh. is not all work is created equal. And we, we divide work into three different buckets. We look at competitive work. That's uh -huh. the work that, that sets you apart. That, that's the work you do that people pay for, that if you invest a dollar in that, five hours comes in the door. That that's truly is the, it's the work that causes people to choose you over somebody else that does what you do. Oh, wow. There's enabling okay. work that's just, you know, the, the work and the technologies and the processes that directly support that work. And mm -hmm. together they make about 30 or 40% of your organization's work, whatever that is. 50 or 60% of your work is just necessary. Keeps the lights on, <laughs> okay. keeps you out of jail. You don't have to be better at it than anybody else. You just have to make sure you don't screw it up. And too often when that work gets mixed, um, the competitive and the enabling work suffer because the necessary work has more urgency to it, is more immediacy to it, needs to be done today. And so the longer term, more important work of the organization tends to get short trips. So you have to keep that work quarantined and keep it separate. Um, and too often you find people running around with their hair on fire, with no sense of what the priorities are, trying to do competitive work, enabling work, and necessary work all in the same hour. And so none right. of it's going to really go well. So, Ron, that's um, incredibly – yeah. Most startup leaders don't understand that you have to step out of working in the organization long enough to work on the organization and really help it grow uh, thoughtfully. I think that's an incredibly powerful perspective, Ron, and thank you for sharing that because I have some some friends that are engaging in small business. I have one that actually uh, owns a lawn care company that's just on the cusp of maybe eight to 10 employees. And so the owner of the company still feels the need to cut grass every day. And I've tried to tell him again and again and again, I said, you're going to have to step back and work like what you said, Ron, on your business. Sure. You can help out if there's a desperate shortage, but you shouldn't be doing the work every day. If you, if it's true that you want to grow. So I think that's really great as far as dividing the work goes and, and understanding that not all work is the same. That's boy, that is very, very helpful, uh, helpful advice. What are your thoughts also, Ron, kind of in that same vein in the, in the growth, growth track? How do you, how do I want to say this? How do you tell people to grow managers, to bring in managers, to kind of offload some of the day-to-day -day operations so that you can focus on big picture stuff? How do you, how do you handle that? Well, typically the, um, the, the symptom of, of it not happening is that, you know, you're meddling and people uh -huh. are, are seeing you as a pain in the ass. Oh. <laughs> because you're in their, their stuff all day long, right? So sure. um, that's one of the first symptoms. The second symptom is, is people, you know, when, you, when you ask them, well, who makes that decision? And everybody points up. Oh, so I see. Decision rights have not been distributed to the right places. All, you know, information goes up, decisions come down. And even if there aren't that many layers in the organization, people are not empowered to make choices. Uh, with respect to what's expected of them. So they're, they're being held accountable for a set of results for which they've not been given the authority or the resources to execute. So those are the early symptoms that tell me, okay, so the people at the top are too involved in the, in the, in the, in the details of the work. Uh -huh. So we, we draw a picture uh, for them that, that shows, think about sort of three interconnected pipes, if you will. And the inner pipe we call the operating system. And that's sort of the day-to-day the -day nuts and bolts that's the, the lawnmowers on the grass, the weed trimmers on the right. um, you know, weeds, the weed spray out there. That's the boots on the ground getting the work done. Okay. 
around that pipe we call the coordinating system. So, you know, if you've got 10 crews out there, that's the schedulers, the crew, the crew leaders, people on site, the houses that are managing the crews, getting the work done, the landscaping, taking the orders, maybe. Okay. And the outside pipe we call the strategic, system, the strategic system, and that's the big picture. That's the one who are looking at weather reports, planning next season, looking sure. to new neighborhoods to see what competition is there, thinking about how do we do snow removal in the winter as a counter-cyclical kind of business to our landscaping business. Yep, yep. People who are thinking about, hey, can we go acquire a small landscaping company in the next county, and now we're going to be across you know, a whole state thing. Oh. Yeah, right, all right, okay. So those are three different systems of the work. And the problem is if you're in the strategic system but doing the coordinating system work and you're in the coordinating system uh, doing the operating system work, think about that pipe sort of having a big choke point in the middle like being squished, right? You're creating, right. creating compression in that system. You can't grow that. And if you try, it's going to look really messy it's going to, and it's going to be really, really costly. You're going to spend a lot of money. Um, and so if you don't get those systems right and get the decision-making put at the right levels and the resources at the right levels, you can't scale. Um, and the problem is when you go from being a landscaper to a crew chief and then a crew chief to a business owner, you take, usually you, you end up taking that work with you because you, you, A, you're the best at it. Um, you love it. That's why you did it. You right. didn't sign up to be doing Excel spreadsheets, QuickBooks, and payroll. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Or firing people or getting a green card check from somebody because you hired somebody that wasn't here legally yeah. uh, and all that. The nonsense that goes with management, and that's not the fun part. So if you're not, if you don't enjoy the idea of scaling and growing a, a large business and its operations, um, you're going to struggle, and you're going to miss being out there with your hands in the dirt where you love to be. And so a lot of times for those entrepreneurs, it's best to get get somebody who, mm -hmm. if you really want to own that business and be part of it, get somebody else to run it for you. Right? Right. Don't don't try and put yourself, don't don't contort yourself into a pretzel. If you're really not cut out for um, uh, you know running an organization like that, or sure. you're not really interested in learning how to, because it's a whole different skill set than you know a, a landscape designer or a weekly crew crew of keeping uh, mm -hmm. people's houses or properties um, maintained, <coughs> and you may not want that skill set. Right. And I think that's, that's a, Ron, that's a very valid point. I think it really goes back to, uh, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's famously well known for his, you know, kind of beating the drum of self-awareness and just, just know where you are. And, uh, and I'm sure you've probably heard the two hire your weaknesses so that, you know, you don't have to be everything to everybody. And in fact, you shouldn't even try. And I think right. it's better just to, to kind of recognize that. So sometimes as companies grow, as, market conditions change and things like that. Um, a company may have to pivot, you know, make a, a, a very drastic, you know, turn in a direction. I understand you kind of involved in strategy and direction and things like that. Ron, tell me, tell us, tell us your thoughts on staying the course versus knowing when to pivot. Cause sometimes you have to survive. Sometimes you have to change the direction you're going. Do you have any indicators that you look for on when you make that kind of decision? Well, customers leaving to go to competitors would be a <laughs> okay. Revenue that would declining, be a good indicator. revenue declining, costs ballooning, your uh -huh. employees. Um, you know, there are some real red flags that would tell you something something's wrong. Okay. Um, you know, when it comes to whether or not your business model, you know, the fundamental business you're in and the way you're executing it is flawed. I think you've got to really zoom out. Right? You, you have to pay attention to, you know, so when I began my career in leadership 
and organizational work, that, it was not a predominant field. It was a, it was a, people did it. People were getting OD degrees sort of okay. on purpose. Yeah. Now, 20 years, 30 years later, everybody's got OD degrees, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of people out there, you know, with, whether they call themselves coaches or consultants with the leadership and organizational shingle hanging out, solopreneurs, small boutiques, all the big firms now do it. It is completely commoditized. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's pricing pressures. There's diff- major competitive differentiation challenges. Um, the fact that I've got 30 years experience doing it, and some upstart hangs out a shingle uses the same exact language that I do. You know, they're 28 years old, uh, charges a lot less, um, and w- is no more credible than you know m- m- my 20-year-old niece. Sure. Um, doesn't matter to the, to the naked consumer or the naked buyer who doesn't know the difference, who hears all the jargony buzzwords about leadership and coaching, they're going to pick the cheap one. Yeah. Uh, and then, then two months are going to call me anyway when they get right. no help. So, <laughs> I love it. Right. But um, it, you know. so, so you've got to watch the context of what a business you're in, right? What yeah. is happening on, what are the trends? What are the, what is, I mean, everybody, nobody, no taxi cab in the world saw Uber coming. Right, hotels for years denied the relevance of Airbnb. Airbnb, right? Um, you know, biggest biggest hotel company in the world doesn't own a hotel. The biggest transportation company in the world doesn't own a car. Um, so these platform aggregator businesses that are consolidating, you know, consumers and and service providers, and taking out all kinds of physical assets. Right? Nobody's you know, I mean, once we went to a went into a mall that shouldn't have been mothballs, right? They're just half the stores are empty now. Um, and yeah, for many people, the, the people, many people believe the best days of retail are actually ahead of us. You know, it's not that retail is irrelevant anymore; it's just boring and inconvenient. Somebody's going to figure out how to reinvent retail. I mean, of all people going back into retail, it's Amazon. So yeah. somebody's going to figure out how to reinvent retail and make it sharp and fresh and convenient and enjoyable. Uh, and you know, I'm not sure we'll see malls come back again, but we'll see we'll see retail come back in some form. So you've got to keep an eye on the horizon. You've got to understand: is is artificial intelligence, is blockchain, is machine learning? Are there are there disruptions headed uh, at your head that you're denying? If you found yourself saying the ad ah, doesn't apply to me, oh yeah, um, be worried. Be very worried because that's you're, t- that's, you're, just, you're broadcasting that you're in denial and you're just asking to somebody to c- come in and eat your lunch. That's kind of like a company that says they have no use for social media. And there's a lot of them saying that. Uh, even today. I know I, it blows my mind. Yep. What's Facebook and why should I care? Well, well hold on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what Ron and... Uh, one of the things that I've always been interested in is, you know, kind of empowering people, not quite on your scale, but, you know, just in my individual life. And that's when I started Blue Collar. It's when I started podcast, do a little, you know, some YouTube talks here and there. And it's fascinating to me how how people underestimate themselves. And so kind of in that similar vein of uh, not recognizing opportunity and like what you said, that dangerous talk that doesn't apply to me. Absolutely right. Uh, you ask people, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that's really awesome. You know, I really think your story is amazing. You should start a little blog and talk about that. Or like the movies that you like, like, no, nobody would want to hear about what I have to say. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like Seth Godin, you know, do you think anybody wanted to hear him on his first blog? Now he's one of the most prolific blog characters and a best-selling author many times over. And it's just like, 
it to me it's amazing how much people underestimate themselves so with that i'm uh i'm curious to know your thoughts on our leaders born or our leaders made yes <laughs> great answer um i i don't i don't think any leader is completely born okay. i think that there are some people who have some natural predispositions for risk tolerance for relationship okay. building for humility for other an other orientation um for you know for courage um, that make leadership a little bit easier for them. Women are way better at it than men. Um, <laughs> but I think the rest of it can be learned. It needs to be learned much earlier than people think. Um, I think, you know, your organization, the military, I think is one of the things that that's the, the amount of time. I have a, 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 my dear cousin is just as we speak, headed off to captain school in Kansas. I mean, I'm in Missouri, near you. Near you. Yeah, yeah. Um, for the next six months, uh, and six months to just be in captain school, you know, I mean, it's just an impressive amount of the train. The train. I have no idea if the content's good, but I'm assuming it's it's good. So organizations just woefully underestimate what their what their remit is to people that they put in leadership roles. That was the, that was the reason we did the research for rising to power, was because we knew that for the last you know 30 years, more than half of those being put in leadership roles fail in their first 18 months. Oh wow! And we thought. We can do better. Why can't we can do better than that? And we wanted to uncover every landmine that could possibly be in the way of these folks, so that we could sort of stop the carnage. Um, and it was a you know a ten year longitudinal study. We had more than twenty seven hundred leaders in the study. Um, we took a hundred folks mid ascent and sort of put them in slow motion and observed them as they rose up to understand. And we asked them along the way what's going on to understand how prepared were they, what what. What the way they're not prepared for? What could the organization have done better, um, so that we could uncover every rock to say if you're going to ascend to broader reach, um, here are all of the grenades that go off underneath you. Here's how to avoid them. Oh, wow. uh, and for the other half of the folks that were actually rising up and sticking the landing and thriving once they had hit a, a higher perch, we wanted to know well, what are they doing? What is it? What is <laughs> yeah. it? Yes. What is it they've figured out? What is it that has made them successful and set them apart from the failure group? And we were able to isolate those as well. And so, uh, you know, but what, one of the things we, we clearly saw was that the, at the time organizations were starting to prepare these folks for that ascent, it was way too late. Mm -hmm. they, they, they were starting so far into these leaders' careers. And, you know, if you've labeled somebody high potential, you put them on one of those lists or one of those quadrants or one of those sheets. Whatever <laughs> right, yeah. Give them some initials. Right. Um, and that's all you've done is written their name in a box. And you have not said, we need to write a check. The minute we've, we've labeled somebody as somebody we're going to bet on, write the check mm -hmm. and get them support, help, coaching, um, development, experiences, you know, aggressively invest in them. Um, otherwise, otherwise, putting their name in a box is just cruel because you just, right. you know, you, what you've done is sign their death warrant. Uh, so it, it's really astounding to me, Gary, how many organizations do not prepare folks uh, and make leaders out of the born skills they see people have uh -huh. um, and, you know, let them fend for themselves and feed them to the wolves. Oh, wow. Boy, I tell you, and, uh, you know, the Army, the United States Army is not necessarily immune to that. We, 
have had our hiccups in the past with, you know, promoting too quickly due to shortages, et cetera, feeding people to the wolves, like what you said. But by and large, uh, as you can attest from the, the person that you referenced, the Army takes great care to at least offer some foundation of formalized institutional training to, you know, facilitate those leadership attributes, at least to some degree. Now, granted, are you going to have a crap one or a jerk one? Of course. But you know, by and large, percentage-wise, the Army is is well-known for, for leadership, uh, and both on the commissioned officer and on the NCO side, like myself. So I've always been very, very interested. And in fact, Ron, uh, a lot of the leadership materials are, are public information. I, I'll try to, maybe when we're done here, I'll shoot you an email. I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on some of the formalized publications of Army leadership. Yeah. So how do you... You know, you bring up a really good question or you bring up a really good topic, identifying those potential leaders. You, you know, sometimes in the army, we're guilty of this as putting the most senior person in charge. That seems, at least in my world, the most commonplace, usual thing, right? Now, better organizations recognize real talent regardless of leadership. Now, granted, a private on the first day of basic training is not going to go into combat and lead troops. Got it. However, that young sergeant that's been in the army for three years might be a better leader than that staff sergeant that's been in for eight. Now on the civilian side of things, you have maybe a young team leader that you'd like to, you know, you have a new project coming up and you're looking for a new project leader, project manager. How would you go about bucking the tradition of seniors first to maybe the young upstart. Can you speak to that? You know, I th I do think you're right that the seniority plays a, and hierarchy plays a far greater role in military structures than it does in, in the okay. private sector. Um, and I do think that organizations that are good at this, who really are good at cultivating a pipeline of leaders, don't necessarily look at um, hierarchy or their place in a hierarchy as necessary. And, and an indicator. Now, the one thing they do take into account, though, is that is is you know, if you go, I, I have a, a guy I'm coaching who went from uh, uh, had a meteoric rise in his organization. There was a merger. He had a, a, a team. He was a major account rep, uh, a big, big sort of deal, deal bringer. Had a team of nine. Went to leading his whole division of 180 people, and then there was a merger, and then he was promoted to the president to lead 350 people. You know, all, all within like eight weeks. Oh wow. So that's what, I mean. He, it's a bridge to he's he's drowning, and I think he'll we'll get him there, and he'll be, he'll he'll get the hang of this. But that's a when you, when you suddenly go from the people you lead being that far removed from you in, in many different places, either look from a location or a hierarchy point of view, that's a whole different learning curve. Mm -hmm. And the things that gratified you before won't gratify you now. The things that made you successful in those roles will actually make you fail in sure. in a role like that. So Absolutely. I think. I think what you, you know, good organizations have criteria, right? They have a sense for predictability of if I'm seeing this behavior now or these results now or this capability now, that's predictive of the following things at a higher perch. Um, and they're able to think about career passing from a leadership point of view. And they, and they you know, they, they use mobility. They move people around the organization. They give them exposure to broader experiences. Um, no great leader that's risen up in an organization, is, if you ask them, what was the most formative part of your development, they're not going to say, oh, it was that five-day workshop you sent me to, right, or it was these two books I read. They're going to tell you about the experiences they had leading. 
you know, given a, a challenging department to turn around, uh, a new product to launch, um, a, uh, a, 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 um, a set of departments that, needed, that were in disarray that needed to integrate better, um, mm-hmm. a, a new uh, division that had to get started up. They're going to tell you about some crucible of an experience that, that was at its beginning uh, outside the reaches of their capabilities that they had to stretch into and become yeah. the leader that that situation or opportunity needed in order for it to, to yeah. succeed. And that's, okay. that's the scar tissue they're going to tell you, turn them into a great leader. So if you're, if you're going to bet on a few Maverick courses or a few thoroughbreds, you need to put them into a series of experiences over the course of many years that continue to refine and cultivate and develop and pressure test whether or not your hunch about them is really accurate. Boy, that's a that's a really delicate balance, I would imagine, between throwing them into the throwing them to the wolves and then also challenging them inside of a difficult leadership environment. I would imagine that just takes probably instinct, you know, and and trust, and maybe even a team of folks to kind of facilitate that. I, I can would imagine that's a very very difficult challenge. Again, I, I revert back to the army. We we have the structures in place. We have the formal training in place. We have Everything is referenceable in the army. And so, you know, you can rely on a lot of pre-existing systems to facilitate that, that rapid growth and maturity. So that's, that's absolutely incredible. And I love the fact that you say scar tissue because, you know, there's a lot in business. I don't need to tell you that's going to put, going to put a wrinkle on your forehead or, you know, a couple, couple wrinkles on the forehead. Yep. What would you say? Yeah. How do you. So again, I reference Gary Vaynerchuk a lot because I'm I'm a big fan, probably a great little disciple of his. He talks about like macro patience and micro speed. How do you tell a young entrepreneur, I say young, young in their business, maybe not necessarily in their age, patience is crucial. You know, you have to let things develop. You know, a lot of times people, they, they get patient, they quit, or like you said previously about leaders, they, you know, they, they fail in 18 months. How... Maybe what kind of methods or, or mindsets, when you talk about patience, how do you go about talking about that with the folks? Well, I think I think you you first have to help people understand who who have a who have a predisposition to um, what might look like impatience or impulsivity or uh-huh. you know adult ADD, um, and they're reflexive in their in their behavior or they're overly yes. reactive. You know, people fear. They think patience has an issue with velocity, right? So it means that I should go slower. Um, right. And that's Ooh, what yeah. patience means. Patience means you should be more thoughtful um, and more intentional in your reactions. Um, okay. So typically when someone is impatient, meaning uh, they, they have an expectation that's not being met um, and it should have happened sooner or faster or better, um, you have to have them see is it, it, what you have to have them see is that there's, the problem first starts with their expectations, right? Impatience is only a problem if your expectations are misaligned with reality. Um, I would love for you know my editors that do work for me to have my my pieces turn around in 24 hours. That's mm-hmm. not realistic. It, right. it, they could do that if I were the only person they were editing for, but given that I'm one of gazillions. You know, if I get it back in a week, that's what it, what it is, right? So if I have no control over the outcome of that, um, and I like it to be – I mean, you can be discontent. The other thing I, I always tell leaders is that you have absolute – your discontent is a gift, 
right? Your mm-hmm. discontent is what gets crap done. It, it's what propels people to be better. It's what, it's yes. what raises the bar. When your discontent becomes weaponized, that's mm-hmm. when you impair your organization. Uh, I so see. learn to use your discontent, whether that's discontent in terms of uh, high expectations, whether that's uh, impatience, you want, you want something faster or cheaper or better or quicker. Um, whatever that discontent, form that discontent comes in, learn to harness it. Learn to use it for the greater good of your organization to propel people forward. And make sure that your discontent is not becoming a, a, a bat you're hitting people over the head with because all you're doing is weakening your organization, not strengthening it. And if you're, if you're just impatient because you want things, you know, you're, you're consistently disappointed in um, what people do for you relative to your expectations, it probably means your expectations are pretty flawed, um, and it probably means your your own sense of yourself is flawed, mm-hmm. and you probably you know turn that weapon inward as well. Wow, boy, just you know, it, the more and more we talk, Ron, it's just like that word self awareness just just keeps coming up, keeps coming up. You know, in my mind, and, and humility, understanding, being able to look within, being able to take your own ego out of the equation, looking at what you're asking versus what you're getting. That is absolutely, ooh, that is vital, vital advice for success. Now, one of the things that uh, I remember reading on your your bio on Navalin's website, navalin.com, uh, is um, talking about intergenerational workplaces. And I would imagine that as a company grows, obviously they're going to have folks from different generations, different socioeconomic groups, different demographics, different genders, and so forth. What are some of your big, big mindset perspective issues when it comes to working inside of a culturally diverse workplace? Uh, be grateful if you have one. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. Okay. Um, and you know, uh, remember that the the, the, the value in a, in a diverse workplace is that you is innovation, right? Because mm-hmm. the more the the more people are expressing differing ideas, the more creativity you'll get. So conflict is the raw material of innovation. Um, and when you have enough conflict, that's where you get the sparks really fly. Mm-hmm. So those differences. Um, now, here's the dangerous little secret that nobody wants to talk about in the diversity and inclusion world. Okay. Um, you know, big D diversity, the complexion of the organization, um, is not a predictor of small d diversity, meaning diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves that if I've got a big enough, comp- you know, sort of, a, if I look at one of those, like, great piece of clip art with one of everything in my big D, that the result will be small D. Um, mm-hmm. That is never the case. Um, and it's, it's a nasty little myth that organizations like to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. I was sitting with an executive team once, um, uh, uh, led, led by a female CEO, uh, it had it had one of everything. It had uh, a gay Asian guy. It had two African Americans. It had a lesbian. <laughs> it had yes. uh, you know two uh, several Asian Americans. Had a like, couple of Latinos. I mean, it, it looked like a, it looked like a piece of clip art. Nice people, clearly cared about each other. And I I sat through their executive team meeting. Uh, and after about two and a half hours, I said, guys, I, I have some interesting news for you. There's not an ounce of diversity around this table. Oh, wow. And they, okay, they had prided themselves yes. on the complexity 
self-esteem. And I said, there's not. Let me tell you how I know that. I, you know, I've taken notes throughout your discussion. And at every single time there was an opportunity for a, a good spirited debate, you said the following. Let's take this offline. We probably need more data oh. for this. Let's not have that. Well, yeah. th- that's not our conversation for you. Let's, let's, have, let's take that uh, in, in one-on-one. Or let, let's wait till we have so-and-so back in the room before we can agree. Every single opportunity. Oh, man. A, right, right, right. You, you, you stuttered it. That tells me you're all the same. Dang, and right, you right, don't right. really want to face your differences. And your differences have nothing to do with the way you look. Um, so, you know, a, a, a rich workplace of, of variance is a great thing. Now, it takes a lot of work because we all have biases, we all have prejudices, we all have misgivings, we all have fears, we all fear being, you know, at the end of the day, the generational issue is, you know, we're far more alike than we are dissimilar. We just don't want to admit it. I wrote a a blog piece once. I I did a book about, you know, 13 years ago called Leadership Divided. And it was about, we we didn't have the word millennials yet, but it was about the emergence of the millennials. And it was about how how they were interacting with than Gen Xers as bosses. I just call them emerging and incumbent leaders. I didn't want to sort of put labels on it. I said the problem is we're spending too much time trying to label them. Xers, boomers, millennials. Now we're calling them Gen Zers with the the ones who come after the millennials. All those labels do is give me a vocabulary to explain why you irritate me. Um, (laughs) And those aren't even the reasons why you irritate me. Because I wrote an article that started out with entitled, um, uh, don't want to work hard, um, feedback averse. Um, right. I, 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 said, I said, don't these all sound like the words we used to describe millennials? Exactly. Those words opened up a Life Magazine 1969 article about boomers. No kidding. Wow. So the reality is at that point in our life, we're all pretty similar. Uh, so, so trying to blame the differences for, you know, my justify them with my for my judgments is foolish. The reality is, the issue isn't which are you, the issue is which are you when, because there are some days I'm the emerging leader, and I'm clueless, and mm-hmm. I got a 28 year old upstart teaching me how to use a new app. Wow. Right, and there are some days he's the emerging leader when I'm teaching him how to sort of give feedback to somebody who, who he's anxious about giving feedback to. So, you know, we're all learners at some point. We're all beginners at some point in our life. It doesn't matter how old we are. And we need to allow that to be okay. And so, uh, you know, the value of varying levels of experience in an organization, varying levels of viewpoints, varying life experiences, to be respected and revered and to be enjoyed. Those, those differences are beautiful, and they, and they make for a very rich workplace. But if you struggle with differences, if you struggle with um, being around people who are not like you or being uncomfortable around how they might see you, or you're, you fear being other, um, then you're going to seek out your own echo chamber. You're going to seek out your own affinity group. You're going to seek yeah, out right, right. people who are like you, and you're going to create little ghettos in the organization, and that's going to probably you know, continue to institutionalize mediocrity in your organization because you're not going to get to great performance levels and great ideas because you're, you're doing everything you can to avoid them. Boy, I mean, Ron, that's... That, that's a mind-blowing concept, and you're right. It is a dirty little secret because we want to have our corporate brochure to be multicolored, so to speak, and, uh, and you're not always uh, doing your company any, any service by doing that. 
competing well, it's, it's, you know, more it's fine important. to do it, Gary. It's fine to have a multicultural complexion of the organization. Celebrate also. that for what it is, right? A, a yeah. multicultural. It's reflective of your marketplace, reflective of your employee base, and, your, and, the, and the cities in which you do business. Sure. Um, and it's, it, it, it is representative of, of who America is. That's great. Do it for that reason. But to say that we're therefore a diverse workforce um, and, and have a diversity of ideas and diversity of thinking and, yes. and are tolerant of, you know, especially in a politicized, polarized world where nobody wants to talk about anything at the workplace anymore because it's not safe. Um, don't say that because that's not the truth. And whatever that complexion is mm-hmm. won't give you that. That's true. That's very true. I, uh, Ron, listen, we're, uh, we're kind of getting towards the end here. I, I feel like I'm going to have to go back and listen to this thing three or four times because you have really put forth, uh, some pretty astounding concepts and not only that, some pretty practical applications. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Now you're also a multi-book author. I think your is your latest book, the, uh, rising to power, the journey to exceptional executives. That's your latest book, correct? Yep. That's true. Okay. Now, is is that the book that you would recommend? Is that, you know, if I'm a kind of a, an upstart or maybe somebody that's really getting into a multi-personal organization, is, is that the best book to read or do you have one that you would recommend? Sure. I think, I think for all leaders, there's some good stuff in there for folks to enjoy. Okay. Great. So Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. I'll have a link to where anybody that listens to this can, uh, can snag that. Again, th- we've been on with Ron Carucci. Gosh, I hope I said that right. <laughs> He's a managing partner of Navalent. Now, Navalent is spelled N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Uh, Ron, is it, is it safe to send people there if they're curious or if there's a, a, an organization? I would absolutely love you to come visit us there. Um, we've okay. got, got great, great videos and uh, we've got a, a quarterly magazine you can subscribe to for free. We've got great blogs. We've got, um, uh, if you want, uh, our our free ebook on leading change. So if you've got some massive hairy change in front of you, if you come oh, wow. to com slash transformation, you can get that free ebook. Okay. Um, we have a, a regular blog. We um, we publish on all kinds of issues of leadership and teams and self awareness and self development. So it's a really rich content rich place to come hang out. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Ron Carucci and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So I'd love to keep in touch. Ron, that is absolutely awesome. I'll make sure and put all those links on there in the show notes. Thank you so very much for taking the time. I know my army duties prevent me from having these types of talks during the day, but I'm just so thankful that you took time out of your day to come on the show. Uh, Forever grateful when it's all wrapped up, I'll shoot you an email and just thank you again so much for your time. And uh, I wish you nothing but absolute success in the years to come. Gary, thanks so much. I appreciate that. And thanks for your service. Yes, sir. Take care. Keep turning up the heat.